morning, church. Well, today, I want to extend a special welcome to anybody who's here, kind of for the new, new first-time guest. Uh, we'd love to have a chance to get to know you, get to connect a little bit better. That can happen out there at that welcome table. Uh, there's a little next step card in front of your chair. You can fill that out. Uh, if there's anything that we can do to be praying for you or we can help you get to know us a little bit better, all that information is on there. We'd love to have a chance to get to know you. You can take that card out there to that table or you can just put it in those boxes in the back and that'd be kind of our way of getting to know you. There's an introvert option and an extrovert option, so you choose, uh, choose your own adventure today. Today is going to be a, a fun day as far as where we're going in God's Word. Uh, today we're talking about like super not confrontational, easy stuff like how you can still go to church and go to hell and can you lose your salvation. So <clears throat> buckle up. Um, if you got a Bible, go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to be. This is going to kind of serve as part two of where we entered into last week. I'm going to do my best to recap as much as I can from last week. But if you find yourself at any point of this message being like, huh, please go back and listen to last week. Uh, this is, again, to prove the point that we just hit in Hebrews of we should not make a habit of not meeting together. Like we need to be able to show up and walk through what we're walking through together as a church and to be able to come in on Sundays and go like, hey, you know what, what, what was that about? Oh, well, be here and, and you'll know. Or if you're not here, hit that podcast up or go online and you'll be able to kind of know where we're at. So if you got a Bible, let's go ahead and dig in because again, we got a lot of ground to cover and a lot of stuff to make sure we really understand what it's saying in God's word today. So Hebrews chapter 10. Once you get there, we're going to start in verse 26 and go down to verse 31. Amen. All right, this is the word of God. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to uh, this passage and we ask that you would give us wisdom. We ask that you would give us insight. We ask that you would speak to us in ways through this that remind us that you are a God of both truth and grace. You are a God of both wrath and love. And help us to not, in our mind, our heart, our insides, have a lopsided view of the true God you are. But help your word right-size our view. Help your word Show us the God you really are. Help your word bring us to a place where we understand how hopeless a state it is to not be yours, to not be in Christ, to neglect such a great Savior that we have in him. So today I pray that you would guard my words, that I would not say anything that causes somebody to think they have something that they don't, and the same time that you would guard my words in which that Somebody who does have salvation does not become fearful and scared of losing something that they have in you. Father, you are the author of truth and the spirit you send to help us understand that truth is not a spirit of confusion. And so today I pray, probably more than anything that I hope for in preaching a passage like this, is that you would give your people clarity and truth, that you would pick up and fill in the gaps where I know as a mere man, I will fall short today. In your name, amen. Short little precursor before we get into this, because I know there's new people who come to MCC every single week. Um, I didn't just like have a bad week 
and go, you know what I want to talk about this week? Hell, fire, and brimstone. All right. Like nobody ticked me off this week. This is not because, you know, we had a bad elders meeting on Tuesday and I'm like, all right, let me just tell these guys like this. Like what we do at MCC is we go and we take our time going through books of the Bible. The hope in doing that is that we would become people who are not just defined by Bible verses, but that we would become people who are defined by the Bible. If you just take your life and you just pick and choose which Bible verses and you treat the Bible like a buffet line, I like that one, I don't like that one, I like this one, and you create your tray, what happens is you get a lopsided view of God. And so what we hope to do in navigating through books of the Bible is to get a comprehensive view of who God really is. So we have a well-rounded and, and, and deep view and understanding, comprehensive, if you will, view of who this God is and who we are because of that. And so today, we, as we've been journeying through this book of Hebrews, we've hit this passage. In the book of Hebrews, most scholars look at the book of Hebrews as if it, as if it is a sermon from a pastor to his church. And we've kind of hit that part of his sermon where he does go hellfire brimstone. And so that's what we are going to do as well. Something that I pray we can come to with fear and trembling because it is what it deserves. Let's walk through this verse by verse, lean into and recap some of what we talked about last week and then answer some more big questions. Again, I've told you this before, uh, my job as a pastor, I feel like more and more has become to give you the right questions to ask as opposed to being a pastor who gives you all the right answers and tells you what I think about stuff. And so today is gonna be another continuation of that, trying to ask the right questions as we come to God's word. So let's dive in. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. All right? He had just got through talking about how nice it was when we all gather together and it's nice. We get together, we encourage each other, hold fast, spur one another on. He's yeehaw. And then he hits a hard right turn and he talks about if we go on sinning deliberately, after having the knowledge of the truth, there is coming a judgment of fire and fury for us. And we're like, okay, well, that's intense. That's a hard right turn. And what we have to understand when we come to a passage like this is he's not talking to rebellious out there in the world, Hollywood culture, people doing bad things, like those people. Remember, who is this book written to? It's a title. Hebrews, all right? Now, these people are Hebrew Christians. They're people who are in a church. This book is written to a church and so he's now talking to church people and he's giving them this plea, this encouragement, this warning. Hey, church people, if, if you go on deliberately sinning, there is trouble, big trouble that is coming our way. And so this is a warning that's not just for people out there who are doing bad things and sinning out there in the world. This is a warning for deliberate sinners within the church. So this is something that we all have to just kind of like turn our radar up and go, okay, this is something that we have to hear, to lean into. No, it's not our favorite thing to talk about, but this is where we have to go. And so he's clearly saying here, if we go on deliberately sinning after receiving knowledge or truth, we no longer have a sacrifice for sin, but what we can expect is judgment, fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 28, he says, He's choosing to use a less than to greater than argument here in verse 28 and 29. And he's referencing back to, because he's talking to Hebrew people, their kind of Hebrew hero, which was Moses. He says, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, we talked about this a little bit last week. In their Hebrew culture, if you were someone who just kind of set aside and laid off the law of Moses, who said, I'm not just gonna listen to that anymore. I'm rejecting that. This is not what governs my life anymore. What they could do, if you still claim to be an Israelite, if you still claim to be a Hebrew, they could actually, on the case of two or three witnesses who said, hey, they have set aside this law. They are not abiding by this. And they are not just not abiding by it like they made a couple of mistakes. They have rejected this. They're in opposition to this. On the case of two or three witnesses, that person could be killed without mercy. Verse 29 goes on. It says, okay, that's what happened if you just broke the law of Moses. He's making a less than to greater than argument here. And he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God? You didn't just trample underfoot a law given to Moses, but you're now trampling under the very son of God. You've profaned the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified and you have outraged the spirit of grace. 
in verse 30. Again, he's referencing back to the book of Deuteronomy here. He says, for we know him, he's talking about God, who said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then a terrifying verse, verse 31, is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So we read these verses and we go, man, that's not the God that I want at 9.42 a.m. on a Sunday morning. That's not a God who I want to wake up to. That God sounds very angry and mean. That sounds like that Old Testament God, but I thought we were in the New Testament. Is this just him talking about how God is to Hebrew people and that God's not like that because we're Gentile people? What's going on here? Because I don't like this God who does these things. What we have to understand is that this is who our God is. We don't have an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. We have a God. And we don't have a, a, a son who's like, oh, well, he's really nice and he's chill and he tells us nice things and he gives cool parables. And then we have a spirit who's our comforter and he makes us feel nice. Like even in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they are all the same God. It's the Trinity. It's God in one. It's three in one. So what we have to do when we come to passages like this is we have to understand that this is the truth and reality of our God, that he is both loving, but at the same time, he is justiful. He is justifying in his love. And he has wrath. And it has to go somewhere. It can either go to Jesus, and you can come under that by faith in Jesus, or that wrath will come to you. And this verse makes that abundantly clear, that this is the characteristics of our God. He is zealous and fiery anger against those who turn away and reject his son. Now, last week we said, okay, if that's how God can be and if that's how God is, then the big question we've got to ask is when is God like that? And when is he not? When is God like that? When is God coming with this fire and anger? When is God pouring out this judgment? When did those things actually happen? And when are those not happening? And again, the passage tells us this. Hebrews 10, 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So, when is God like this? When is God dumping out this wrath? When is God bringing this fiery anger upon us? He is doing that to people where there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Where there is no one to take away their sins. Where there is not a sacrifice that has been made on their half to be a payment, or sometimes the Bible calls it a propitiation, an atonement for their sins. Now, let me briefly explain what in the world that means. We sinned against a holy, righteous, perfect God. In order to be back connected to that God, someone would have to pay our price for our sins and our lives because we sinned against that God. There was judgment, retribution was owed to that God. Now, what this passage tells us is that there was a coming punishment, that, that God would not be just, right, and loving if he choose to just go, you know what, guys? <clears throat> had a good week, okay? And so I know you did some really stupid, rad, bad, wrong things. You're evil, wicked. I understand that, but here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to go, you know, Italian and forget about it. We're good. It's all good. Forget about it. Don't worry. No, he would not be a good God if he did that. Because we know if somebody did something terrible to our son, somebody did something terrible to my son, And I'm in the courtroom and the judge just goes to the criminal who did something terrible to one of my kids. And the judge just goes, ah, we're just gonna forget about it. That is an evil judge. That's not the God you wanna believe in. You want, a God. as much as we may say we don't, we actually do want a God of judgment. We do want a God of wrath. Because it has to go somewhere. If it doesn't, he's evil. And so what the pastors of the church in Hebrews is doing here is he's talking to a group of people that understood there had to be bloodshed for their sin. There had to be a sacrifice made. And they had lived under this old sacrificial system of once a year on what's called Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, they would go in and bring in a lamb and the priest would sacrifice that lamb and that would cover their sins for one more year. 
It would cover them. Now again, it would not deal with them fully. It would cover them up for a year till the time they come back the next year and they deal with that. Now what this pastor has been doing for the whole last four chapters has been explaining that Jesus has sacrificed his life once and for all to be the ultimate sin payment that doesn't just cover it, but deals with it fully and finally if you put your faith in him and his finished work, what he did on the cross and when he resurrected from the grave to conquer the death that sin caused. So he says, listen, If you neglect this Jesus, if you turn your back on him and you say, you are not the one who has paid for my sins, this blood of the covenant does not define me and does not be what governs my life, then what you're now saying is you want to be the one who stands and gives the payment. And that is a debt you cannot pay. No matter how much you try, you will never pay that debt off. So he's explaining this to these people who are coming from a Hebrew background. Essentially what he's trying to help them understand is, if you now say, I'm going to leave this faith in Jesus and go back to good old fashioned being a Jew, where I can just sacrifice lambs and goats and heifers, He's saying that blood won't cut it anymore. You could get all of the lambs. You could get all of the goats. You could get all anything. You could even sacrifice your own blood and that will not cover and pay for your sin. It has to and it only can be Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. You will come to God through the blood of Christ or you will not come to the Father at all. That's the point he's making. So he's saying, if you are not in Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. So instead of getting love, grace, mercy, you get anger, wrath, and judgment. Now, if that's when God is like that, when there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, the question we leaned into last week is, okay, well, who are the people who there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin? Who, who, who are these people who no longer have that sacrifice for sin remaining for them. And again, the passage walked us through this. Let's just recap a little bit. First of all, it's those who go on sinning deliberately. Verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. This is deliberate, intentional, on purpose, every day, purposely choosing not to just sin once or twice in my life, but choosing a lifestyle of sin, deliberately setting aside, rejecting the truth and the love of God and deliberately walking headlong into a life of sin. Next, who are these people who there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin? Those who have become adversaries. But a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire will consume the adversaries. These are people who are opposed. I'm opposed to God. I'm opposed to his love. I'm opposed to what he's doing. Now, again, we have to be careful here because we can write this off and we're like... <laughs> You have to really not like Jesus to show up at church, to try to like look for things. I don't know, some of you, I don't think anybody is here in this place, but most of us, like you, you came to church today and, and nobody's gonna go, you know what, I'm an adversary of Jesus. But then we read stuff in the book of Philippians where it says God opposes the proud, which means like God lines up on the other side like if it was a football game, God's on offense and you're on defense. I'm opposing you. And so don't come to a verse like this and go, I'm not God's adversary. Well, don't be so quick to write that off because you showed up on Sunday. When we look at how we live our lives or the things that we do in our own pride where we say, God, this is my throne in my life. I'm gonna choose to maybe let you run these aspects of who I am, but these other aspects of who I am and what I do, these are mine. He goes on from there and he says, these people who there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin are those who trample underfoot Jesus. How much worse punishment do you think there will be for the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God? What is he, what he's explaining here is when you see and understand and you've come and you sat in church service or you heard the message of the gospel and you see who Jesus is, or you see what Jesus has done and you see how he has laid his life down. He has come from heaven to the dirt of the earth and laid his life down on a bloodstained cross for you. And then you just step right over his sacrifice and what he's done for you to move right into your sin. You're trampling underfoot the son of God. He goes on from there, continue to explain who are these people who there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin for. He says, it's the people who profane or neglect the blood of Jesus. He says, they've trampled underfoot the son of God and they have profaned the blood of the covenant. 
So there's this new covenant that is not based on works, but it's based on faith. It's a new covenant that's not based on the law anymore, but it's based on love. It's not based on you keeping religion anymore, but it's a, a, a covenant that's based on your relationship with Jesus. And he says, if you now treat the blood that signed the treaty of this new covenant just as something common, as not important, as not significant, as not something that can purify you and unite you fully to Jesus, if you just treat it as something that not... That doesn't have that power in your life, then you're profaning this. You're not treating it with the power and the respect and the honor that it actually deserves. You're treating the blood of Jesus like it's just common. The next thing he says, when he's talking about who are these people who there no longer remains a sacrifice, he says, the people who have outraged the spirit of grace. He says... How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, one, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, two, and has outraged the spirit of grace. And again, we talked about last week, it sounds like those two things, the spirit of grace and outrage are diametrically opposed things that should not even show up in the same sentence. And we explain this in this way of understanding that this spirit of grace has given us so much love, so much patience, so much mercy, yet we have been people who have neglected and taken advantage of that to use this grace to our own advantage, to be people who say, oh yeah, let me, you know, I get in one of those moments where I start to feel some of that temptation and I have a thought like this, well, I guess I can sin because I know Jesus will forgive me. He's saying that outrages the spirit of grace because it is us taking advantage of this grace. And the flip side of that is also true. When we come to this place where we see how much grace has been made available to us, when we understand how much love and mercy and kindness God has given to us, but we still refuse to accept that or to believe that or to say crazy things in our mind like, man, I'm just way too far gone and I've done too much stuff. God can't forgive me. The spirit of grace is outraged and grabs us by the collar and goes, you idiot, don't you understand what's been done for you? How dare you say that you can condemn yourself when the son of God didn't choose to come and condemn you, chose instead to come and save you. You're you're, like literally, you're an idiot. He's outraged because you're choosing to neglect and you're choosing to not receive this absolutely amazing gift. It's like if I came to you and I said, hey, what's your mortgage? And you're like, $250,000. I was like, all right, cool, here, here's a check. And you're like, no, pastor, that's just too nice. And I'm like, listen, God told me to bless you. And you're like, no, we just, you know, we just really take pride in doing things our own. I'm like, at that point, I'm, I'm going to get angry with you. I'm like, listen, you idiot, I'm trying to pay your debts off. Would you just take this? That's the spirit of grace to us. Go on, would you just understand the price that's been paid for you? Okay, so he's saying, who are these people who there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin? They're adversaries. They're people who deliberately go on in sin. They're people who trample underfoot the blood of the covenant. These are the people who there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. We got all, if you want more explanation and expounding upon all that, that's last week's message. Now the big question is, who were they before this? Who were they before there was no sacrifice remaining? Who were they before that happened? Because this whole passage is not just about the bad that they were doing. Remember, he makes a less than to greater than argument and he leans into the fact that you knew what was right. You had the truth. You were people who sat in churches and leaned into these things and then you rejected. You weren't just people who were out here going, you know what, I just, you know, I don't really know anything about that Jesus stuff. I don't really want to know anything about that Jesus stuff. I'm just going to go choose to live life my way. He's, He's saying that's not who we're talking to. We're talking to people who knew stuff. We're talking to people who were in church and then rejected. And because they were in and then out, so to speak, there's a greater punishment coming. So who are these people? And who were they before? There no longer remained a sacrifice of sin for them. The first thing we see is that they were people with knowledge of the truth. 1026 tells us this. 
If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, maybe seeing that and going like, well, what in the world does that mean? What I believe this means, and the Bible makes this very clear, that we will be judged based on the amount of truth that we know. That's why, hear me on this, and I'm not saying show up to church less. The more you show up, the more you'll be held accountable. The more you receive teaching of the truth of God's word. That's why so many people would, would rather, much rather go to a place where the gospel is watered down, it's gospel light. There's a God who does not ever punish. There's a God who would never, ever in a million years judge people or send anybody to hell. I would choose to go there because I don't ever have to hear about God's job wrath and God's punishment. I just get to go hear about how God wants to make me into the best version of myself and all these nice little things. And I just get that gospel. And that's why people in droves flock to that. And that's why people in droves who understand and actually read their Bible flock away from that because they go, no, 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 no. There's got to be more to the story. And so what God, I believe, would, would say to all of us is... If we are people who say we are his, it means that the more knowledge of God's will you have, the more you will be held accountable for doing it. And that, I'm telling you, as someone who preaches and teaches this every single week, has a degree in this thing, that's terrifying. But also, it's extremely encouraging to go, God, You would show me your word. You would show me your truth in such a way that my life would radically change. That you would be with me and you would show me how to take this confusing at times, this scary at times, this incredibly encouraging at times word and truth. And you would use this to make my life not the best version of Trent, but the life that would be Jesus living through me. A life that glorified and magnified you. A life that was true life. A life that was so much deeper, richer, and more satisfying than being some celebrity on TV, than being TikTok famous, than being verified on whatever social media thing that there is out there, of being wealthy, of having all the sex, drugs, and women around me. I would love, God, to have a life that was real life, not a life that looked like what real life was defined by the culture. And God's word says, okay, here it is. Come find that truth. Come seek that truth. And he's saying the people who there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin for are people who are well aware of exactly what the truth of the gospel actually was. Next, he says, who were these people before? He goes on and he says, they were people who were described as God's people. This is when he leverages and quotes from Deuteronomy to explain this to them. He says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So remember, like he's talking to church folks and these people who there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. At one point, they were defined as his people. They were talked about as God's people. Now, if you're hearing this in your Hebrew you come from a Jewish background and heritage, you totally understand this. You get what he's saying because you go back and you play through your family lineage history and you know and understand that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, were considered God's holy chosen, set apart, even sanctified is the word there, holy set apart people were the nation of Israel. That all happened when he went and chose Abraham. Chose Abraham. Hey, I'm gonna bless you. We're gonna, it's gonna be awesome. But we remember stories even when you go back and they're wandering through the wilderness. And because of their lack of faith, a whole generation dies in the desert and does not make it into the promised land. So what we have here is this pastor defining and helping his people understand that God's wrath will even come. This is is scary. It's controversial. God's judgment and wrath will even come upon people who are, quote unquote, defined as his people. We see this on, on great display in the book of Hosea. Hosea 4, 6. My people, and this is God's chosen people. He's talking about the nation of Israel here. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And it's not because God wasn't revealing himself. He makes that really clear. Not because they didn't just choose to know. He says, 
because they rejected knowledge. I tried to reveal to myself to them, but they chose not to accept the truth about who I was. To go back to the last point, he says, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. To, to make matters worse, he's not just saying, I'm going to judge my people. He says, I'm going to judge my people's people because they've neglected and rejected my truth and the knowledge of who I am. So these are people who didn't just know the truth about God, but they were people who said, we're gods. Now, to put this in our, our modern context, what this means for us is that you can say, I'm part of the church. I'm a member at McDonough Christian. Or I, I go to church. Or I believe in Jesus. Or I vote Christian. Or I'm evangelical. Whatever you want to say. You can say all those things. But the truth of the matter is this. There is a vast difference between the visible church and the actual church. That just because we are quote unquote God's people in here and we feel like maybe I'm God's people. We're God's folks. We're God's people. We vote Christian. We think Christian. We show up and we put ourselves in Christian churches. What he's saying here is God knows who's real. And there is a vast difference between the church that is visible and shows up on gatherings on Sunday mornings and who is the real church in the eyes of Jesus, the groom of that church. Listen, there's a lot of ladies in this room. You know what I'm not confused about? Which one of you is my wife? Okay? I got that nailed down. Even Brittany Rellage, she's like, people ask her, my wife, if they're sisters all the time. But you know what? I know exactly which one is which. All right? I've, gotten, I've had to get really good at never just like assuming which one is which from behind. I've got to like go up and look around the face and be like, hey, you know, there, there you are. I know who my wife is. And Jesus, over and over again, he says, I am the groom and the church is my bride. And he has no confusion over who is really his. No confusion. Where the confusion exists is here. In us. And he said these incredibly alarming things, Jesus did, in the book of Matthew. Talking about, again, <clears throat> people who I would say are his people, quote unquote. Church people. He said this. Scary stuff. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, he's talking about the judgment day. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I, never, I don't know who you are. You, you, you said you did some things. Lord, Lord, did we not show up on Sunday? Lord, Lord, did we not send our kids to Christian school? Lord, Lord, did we not put, you know, privacy filters on our stuff so that nobody ever heard a cuss word? Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things? He goes, honestly, the fact that you're leveraging and leaning into what you've done for me and not what I've done for you is proof positive that I don't know you and you don't know me. Depart. We don't know each other. You thought you were my people. But you're not. And shame on you for thinking you were my people all along when you didn't surrender to me. You thought that you could work your way into my favor. No. So, who these people were before, there no longer remained a sacrifice for sin, was people who had knowledge of Jesus and who, at least on the surface level, were considered his people. Now, the third and most controversial thing that he says these people were before there no longer remained a sacrifice for sin is they were people who were sanctified. Now, which last week, you should have saw me read this and, and I've taught you guys enough about sanctification. You should have raised your hand and been like, whoa, whoa, nah, you can't, that's not, what, hold on, stop, wait a minute. This is so controversial. This is why this passage is argued about. This is why this passage has denominational splits. This is why this passage is one of the key de defining lines between Calvinism and Arminianism. Because look at what he says right here. And again, he's talking about people who are going to hell. 
He's already said, I mean, there's fury of fire and all that blood and guts. Like, it's coming to these people. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin for these people. And he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be delivered by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of truth? So he's saying, who were these people before there no longer remained a sacrifice for their sin? He's saying there were people who were sanctified to which we go. Big question here you should ask when you hit this verse. Sanctified is something that happens for people who are what? Christians, saved. By my faith in Jesus, I have received salvation from Jesus. I've been justified from my sins. And now I'm entering into the process of sanctification. I've been set apart, been made holy. And I will enter into eventually glorification as my life is free from the presence of sin. And so we read a word like sanctification and we go, okay, so is this passage saying that someone who is sanctified, which is someone who is saved, who's experienced and received salvation, that that person is in danger of going to hell. That the sanctified person is someone who is now, can potentially lose their salvation. I can just reject this and move on and go away from this. Is that what this passage, and is that what really the book of Hebrews is all pointing to? Again, welcome to MCC. Very controversial stuff that we cannot dance around. I wanna walk you through the three primary views of this whole thing right here, of sanctification. And does that mean that I can lose my salvation? Does it mean something else? Or does it mean something else because of what he's talking about here? Okay, let me walk through and do my best to try to explain to you the three views on this. Again, this is one of those issues as a church where you may disagree and that's okay. I'm gonna do my best to try to tell you where I feel like this is actually leaning and we'll go from there, all right? First of you, is this verse is just explicitly teaching that you can, in fact, lose your salvation. Those who are sanctified have obviously been justified by faith, and therefore they have been a recipient of this salvation. And this verse is saying that those people who had that sanctification are now going to hell. And therefore, the people who would adhere to this view would say, there is no such thing as eternal security, which means I can be in, and if I don't like what I'm in, I can be out. I reject it. I move on. And I was really saved, really heaven bound. The blood had really atoned for my sins. And I said, I don't really want to be adopted by you, God. I'm choosing to unadopt myself and move out of this and move on to rejecting that. That's one view. The other view, and I think this one is stupid. So, just have that. I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, uh, I don't like this one. I think it's dumb. Uh, anyway, the other view on this, second view, is that this is a theoretical possibility that won't happen. Okay? Which is kind of like, it's a theoretical possibility that the author is using as a warning. It's his way of saying, if you forsake the faith, you would be lost. You, get, you track with me on this one? He's saying, okay, if you, if you were to forsake the faith and turn your back on this and leave this, you would be lost, but you can't because God will never let anybody be snatched out of his hand. But if, he, but if you could, you would. Again, I think that one's dumb. Um, I don't think the author to the church in Hebrews is thinking of theoretical possibilities. The reason he writes this I can tell you as a pastor, we don't have much time to waste, okay? Like we got, we're busy people. He's not just like, well, let me give you these theoretical things. No, I think he's writing this because he sees this happening in the church. Again, what I believe is over and over again happening in this Hebrew church, and it's evidenced by what he's getting ready to say after this passage, is people are turning from Judaism, they're putting their faith in Jesus, but then they're starting to get persecuted because of their faith in Jesus, and when rubber meets the road and the stove get turned up on their faith, some of them go, mm, I don't know about this Jesus guy. I got uninvited from Passover dinner with my family and I just love 
Sarah's biscuits. I just cannot follow this Jesus if it means I don't get to go to Thanksgiving. My family, my family. I love my family. They're so awesome. And again, Jesus said, if anybody does not hate mother or father, he is not worthy to follow me. If you're not willing to lose your life, you will never find life in me. And this is, I believe this is happening in his church. And I believe in, in some way, shape, or form or fashion, it's happening in our church. Now, again, there's not a whole lot of persecution on you guys. People aren't coming after your necks right now. But what we, are, what we face is this propensity and this tendency to just draw back into nominal American casual Christianity that is not Christianity at all. Just go, yeah, I'll show up. And then the rest of the week, I do my thing. I do whatever I want to do the rest of the week. Jesus is the Lord of my Sunday, but I got the rest of the week on lock. It's my week. Jesus is my Sunday. I do my God thing. And then the rest of the week is mine, which is the way the vast majority of American Christians live their life. And so why the vast majority of people are leaving churches because they see the hypocrisy that exists in them and want to have nothing to do with it. The divorce rate among Christians is exactly the same. The pornography view rate is exactly the same. And so it's, it's saying here, I see you do this, church, is what the pastor is saying. I'm, I'm watching you guys leave. I wish he would have called some of them out by name. Like, Henry, bro, you wimped out. The heat got turned up on your faith a little bit. Some people started asking you about it at work. And you said, I don't know Jesus. You hear a little bit of financial crisis in your life. And the first thing you did was, man, I just can't be generous anymore. Your single guy who met a really hot girl and was like, hey, I'm down if you're down. And you had to go, no, Jesus says that I shouldn't do this, but I really want to do this. And if I don't do this, then she'll break up with me. And I think she's the one that God sent to me. I'm just walking through the mental stupid gymnastics that males make. And uh, women, you do the same thing too, but with shoes and stuff. Um, um, and, and, and we get in these modes where we, we start reasoning and rationalizing and walking through these things. And again, this is what this abandoning looks like in our life. In their life, they weren't abandoning Jesus to go rebel. They were leaving faith in Jesus and a relationship with Jesus to go back into what? A staunch, law-based, get God on my pocket, if I do good, I get good understanding of God. And I don't think he's writing to them saying, this is theoretical. If you could leave God, then bad things would happen, but you can't leave God. So just a warning. The third option is that there is actually a surface level, nominal, not deep sanctification that has taken place that is not salvation. This is the third option. Again, first option is you can lose it. The second option of what he's talking about here is this is just theoretical. And then the third option would be this is just a superficial, initial sanctification that never became a manifestation into true salvation. He's talking about something. When he references salvation or when he references sanctification here, he's not talking about true, set apart by God Sanctification. This is the third viewpoint here. Now, before I tell you where I'm at on this, I want to walk you through basically the entire book of Hebrews. And I know we're at our time, so have fun. Um, I believe, personally, this is more so what he's leaning into. And here's why. Within the same chapter, chapter 10, we have this verse. I want to show, I want to show you these two verses side by side. Because this is to be a conundrum in our faith if we come to these two. Look at, if you got your Bible, just go back a little bit to make sure I'm not making stuff up and putting it on a screen to deceive you. Hebrews 10, 14. In Hebrews 10, 14, he says this. And this, I mean, he's in the same chapter. For by a single offering, he's talking about what Jesus has done by giving his life for us. Remember, who does all this bad stuff happen to? 
people who there no longer remains a sacrifice and offering for their sin. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So again, just don't get into this one just yet. Look at just verse 14 of chapter 10. For by one single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time. That's all time. I did the Hebrew and the, or did the Greek study of that. That means forever. It means all time. Those who are being sanctified. So if I just take verse 14 as it is, if I'm being sanctified, what that means is Jesus has perfected me for all time. Now, if that's true, then can, then if this is true, that is not true. Tracking with me? If I've been perfected for all time as someone who is being sanctified, and then here, as someone who is sanctified, I'm now going to hell, how did what was perfect get unperfect and hell bound? It's a tough verse. Very confusing. Here's why we have to come to passages like this and go, is the Bible just contradictory? Because these two verses seem to contradict themselves. He's saying, one single offering, all time being sanctified. We're perfected. If we who are sanctified are being perfected for all time, then how is someone who is sanctified hellbound? Here's a lot of people come to the book of Hebrews without coming to the book of Hebrews to prove the point that salvation is something that can be lost. As I have journeyed through the entire book of Hebrews, here's what I can tell you. There may be other places in the Bible that will lean into that, but the book of Hebrews is not a place that pastors, theologians, church leaders, and scholars should go to to leverage or make the point that salvation can be lost. If you truly have it, it can then be lost. Here's why. That's not the author's context and intent. And I wanna show you what I believe his intent is. First of all, if they had to put it in one verse, I'm gonna show you all the other verses. I'm gonna put it in one verse. This is why. Hebrews 3.14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold or hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. If there's one thing that the book of Hebrews teaches about salvation, it is that those who persevere and hold fast to Christ to the end are the ones who have salvation. That the proof positive that you are in Christ and have received the salvation of Christ is not that you raised your hand in one moment at some revival, some camp, or some VBS. The proof positive that you are in Christ is that you persevere to the end. You hold fast. And I love the book of Hebrews probably more than any other book that I've read through recently as far as the Bible goes because it kicks in the face what we do so many times in our American churches, which is I just want to get to this one little finish line thing where I raise my hand and I say this thing and we completely neglect the journey that our faith is of following after Jesus, of persevering, of holding fast, of not drifting, of not wavering. All are things that the pastor of this Hebrew church tells him over and over and over and over again. And I want to show you these things because I think the pastor, what his whole point is, is guys, you should be much less concerned with could you lose your salvation if you really had it. And you should be so much more concerned with persevering in the faith that you are fully confident that you have. Hold fast. Don't drift. Don't waver. So I want to, I want to walk you through it. Please, if you have a Bible, open it up. If you're on your phone, look through this. We're going to have an old-fashioned Bible study and I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and then we're going to baptize somebody. All right? Go all the way back to Hebrews chapter two. I'm gonna make this fast. I'm not gonna explain a lot of them. I'm just gonna let you read it word by word. Hebrews two, verse three. I love hearing pages turning. Thank you for being people of the word. Hebrews two, chapter two, verse three. Let me make sure I went one before that. Yep, that's the first one. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. So he's saying, this is a salvation. You can neglect this. You cannot grab hold of this. You can neglect this salvation. 
It was declared first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All right, keep going to chapter three, verse six. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house. It means we're saved. That's what he's after there. We are his house. We're part of his family. Key word here, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That's self-explanatory. Go down to verse 12 of chapter three. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There it is yet again. Verse 11 of chapter four, just keep going. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Chapter four, verse 14, just go down a little bit. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Chapter five, verse nine. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who owe him. Not just think the right things about him, just show up to the little gatherings about him, to those who obey him. Go to chapter six, verse four. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once, this is one of the key ones, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. They are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And then he uses, this is key in understanding what he's after here because Jesus used the same metaphor. Verse seven, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those, or to useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. It end is to be burned. This is the same parable that Jesus used. He said, seeds fell in this type of soil and a little bit of stuff came up, but it never bore fruit. Why did it never bear fruit? It never bore fruit because the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches came and stole it away. He's saying, the seed fell in the soil. It was set apart to grow, but it didn't because the soil was bad. Keep going to verse, uh, chapter seven, verse 25. I love this passage. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, not through my works, not through my logic. He's able to save to the uttermost. Now, the uttermost is not just talking about distance. It is talking about totality. He is able to completely and totally save those who draw near to him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter nine, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of sins, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. It is a eternal inheritance. That's a forever inheritance. We receive this eternal inheritance. 
That's people who are called. Since a death occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Chapter 10, verse 9. Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He's talking about the first covenant being done away to establish the second, the new covenant by the blood of Jesus. Verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Love it here. Once for all. And then the one I just showed you that I think is a quintessential one of what this pastor is at, the point I believe he's trying to make. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Last one I'll show you. This is where he goes after this hell of fire brimstone stuff in chapter 10. He says in verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of the Father, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. I love this. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Say again, persevere, persevere, persevere. Verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's who we are. This whole book is not supposed to be this thing that we read and go, okay, can I lose my salvation or not have lose my salvation? This whole thing is about understanding the truth and reality that salvation and who has it and who doesn't have it, you will never fully know down here. That is above your pay grade. What we are called to do is persevere, persevere. Lean into the hope that you have in Jesus. Lean into the confidence that you have in his son. Lean into the finished work of Jesus. Lean into the fact that if you are someone who is sanctified, then you are being perfected forever. That you've been adopted into a new family. And know that if you look at your faith in the mirror, and you look at your life, and you're letting go of things. Your faith is wavering. It is fickle. The moment something happens, you're quick to willing to give up. If you know right now in this room, there's something in your life that if that something was taken from you, you would question or maybe even potentially abandon your faith. If you are hanging by that thread, then my friend, you may not be someone who has persevering faith. It may just be fickle. And maybe, and this verse is what should remind us and alarm us, maybe, even right now, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sin because you have neglected the blood of Jesus. And so the question that I wanna leave you with is this, is your faith persevering? If it's persevering, based off of everything I've read from the book of Hebrews, if your faith is persevering, you have real faith. Now, there's a difference between something that's persevering now and something that will persevere to the end. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need the sustaining grace of Jesus. What his whole hope to this church was, was goodness, guys, hold fast. Do not drift. Do not let go. Persevere in the faith. The faith that perseveres to the end is a faith that was proved to be real all along. If you give up, you turn your back. What you had was maybe a half-hearted, kind of separated myself out, you know, came to church, did some things, sung some songs, gave a little bit of money even. I even went on a mission trip because I like building houses or something. But what you didn't have was real faith. You set yourself apart, you know, you changed your status online to a Christian and you proudly voted whatever thing you think is the one that Christians should vote. You did all of those things. You did the thing, you wore the thing, you identified as a Christian. But all along there was an outward expression, an outward separating out from the world. But on the inside, Jesus had not done the work because you didn't let him. 
So as we receive communion today, I, I pray that you hold in your hands and realize you are holding the source of your perseverance. The one who endured to the very end, giving his broken body for you and his poured out blood for you. This is what we ingest. This is what we take into our lives, not on just a physical place, but on a metaphysical place in the spiritual realm. This is our source of perseverance. And I pray today you boldly ask Jesus to give you persevering faith. Let's pray. Father, move in our hearts, move in our minds. Show us who you are. Show us the sacrifice for our sins. The price has been paid. As we now sing to you, pray that we understand the love that's been given.